Section 34 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Heirloom by T. Duthie Lyle. Section 34, Volume 3, Chapter 7, More Light. While thus, as if by the infallible will of heaven the light of its omniscience shines athwart the gloom, dispelling into the clearness of day the dark clouds which once hung about the mystery of the Vernwood tragedy with the impenetrable density of a pall, while the true assassin of Bertram Gallant had been brought to light and justice by the instrumentality in the hands of Providence of so humble an agent as a dog, while justice had claimed her own, the murderer's sin had been avenged, and his crime had been requited with his life. While this had been accomplished, yet other circumstances combined to effect a still more transparent elucidation of the enigma of the case. There have been those, the advocates of the horrid system of slavery, upon which the telling of this story is based, who have claimed that the absolute ownership, control, property, and power over the weak by the strong, the subserviency of the enslaved to the will of the rich and free, that those enthralled descendants of the African race who in those days ministered, though in bondage, to the wealth of the southern American states, enjoyed greater benefits in the care of humane ownership than if they were free. It has been claimed, if we may use a parallel simile, in effect, that because the horse or the cow or the ass was dependent on man for his daily needs and troubled not his head for the bread of the morrow, the condition of the horse or the cow or the ass was more desirable than that of man. But this is a line of argument, an analogy however far absurd it may be or the reverse, which, coming within the province of the economist or the statesman, rather than the fictionist or storyteller, we will not trouble to pursue. It is a generation now since the die was cast and the fatal veto given, and a dastardly system of human barter and thraldom forever overthrown. Whether in civilization or barbarism, slavery has now been recognized as a stupendous blot and through the round world its practices have been voted a disgrace to civilization, its bulwarks assailed, and its strongholds overthrown. As we hinted in the early explanatory pages of this story, the explosion of this system, which has so long since been weighed in the balances of true intelligence, rectitude, and justice, and found wanting in every element of virtue, righteousness, and good, was as the blasting of a mine. The uncomely fabric was overthrown, and its ruins, its debris, its component parts, were by the force of the terrific disaster, if disaster we may call it, a disaster wrought, albeit that it might produce good, hurled to the farthest corners of the earth and scattered as to the winds of heaven. Among the items of human wreckage which had been uprooted from the alien soil in which it had been implanted was a deeply colored family, which, subsequent to the emancipation decree, had located and employed themselves 
or rather when they could find an employer, had been employed, about the docks and shipping interest in the city of Baltimore, Maryland. This family of colored people consisted of a father and mother and some four or five younger branches, and rather unusual to tell, they formed practically an unbroken family circle, that is, a family circle unbroken, undivided by the slave trader's ruthless hand, for the now-aging couple had, during their days of bondage, been spared that poignant, soul-embittering anguish which many and many a slave parent had suffered of seeing their offspring ruthlessly torn from their bosom, rent forever asunder or sold by auction for gold before their very eyes. But the colored family to which we allude had, previous to the death of their master and owner at the Battle of Five Forks, and previous to emancipation, had been the property of Hubert Gonald, who, as we have said, was one of those planters, for there were planters, and planters in those days, slave owners and slave owners, for while some were not unkind, others were mere devils incarnate in the treatment of their slaves, who was a humane and considerate master. This family consisted of the father and mother, Jeff and Martha, and four or five brothers and sisters of the Jules Massey, who has occupied a not despicable position throughout the course of this tale. After all, blighting and deliriatous as is the influence of the curse of slavery upon any country or community in which it takes root, there may have been some grains of truth in the assertion of its advocates that the slave was better off under the protection of a master than dependent on his own resources and free. For certainly, so hard is the battle to be fought to win the good things of this life, that it may require a training to fit him for the fray, and a race which has spent its generations in downtrodden subserviency and ignorance must emerge from such a school, it must be admitted, but indifferently acquitted to maintain its own in the golden strife. Moreover, on the American continent, and perhaps throughout the world, there exists a prejudice in the minds of those whose skins are white inimical to those whose skins are black, for the pale-faced races have ever been the dominant factors in the work of civilization, and must we not add the work, too often also, of demoralization throughout the generations and histories of men. And as Jules Massey was in a highly prosperous vein, as if he had struck ore, and as all the other members of his house were dependent on their own resources, and their own resources seemed a poor resource upon which to be dependent, their existence was one which Jules, in the tenderness of his heart and yearning affection toward his parents, too well knew. In plain terms, while Jules Massey was prosperous and independent, even for him in affluence, his parents and brethren and those of his father's house were the reverse. And as Jules Massey's heart as well as his pocket, blood copiously and continuously for the impecuniosity of those of his kith and kin, it occurred to Jules that it would be no greater extravagance on his part to do the large share which he did towards the maintenance of those of his family in London than it would in the city of Baltimore, where their own untrained incapacity, combined with that prejudice which we have said, more especially at the date of our story, was in some quarters very strong against the black-skinned race. They earned, to use a homely phrase, scarcely enough to keep together their bodies and their souls. 
It was under such circumstances as these, therefore, that, being left to the pursuit of his own unembarrassed desires, Jules Massey, soon after the events surrounding his late master's murder and all the evils which followed in its train, when the terrible storm had gone by and left him an untrammeled agent and free, and perhaps to interrupt the monotony of his now idle life, resolved that his father and mother should at his expense visit British shores. And so, leaving the younger scions to shift for themselves in the city of Baltimore as best they might, to England, Martha Massey for the second time, and old Jeff for the first time came. If he had sprung from the same level and the same stock, the contrast between the highly civilized jewels, now fairly imbued with European ways of thought, and his kith and kin, was as a great gulf fixed. But if Jules was thus highly civilized, as we have seen, and, in his own estimation at least, a very genteel person indeed, perhaps almost as important in his own eyes as his late master had been in his, in the heyday of all his luxuriance and wealth, yet beneath his black skin there was the true grit, and Jules' heart had never gone very far awry. If Jules was vain and conceited to the backbone, his heart had ever kept fair and square and true. Magnified as he had become, there was not a spark, not a scintilla in him of that most despicable of all the despicable shapes of human pride and folly which makes a man forget, or that most noble and exalted form of humility and manliness which makes a man remember, however humble they may be, the kith and kin from whose level he has arisen to his higher estate. Old Jeff Massey, woolly-headed, horny-handed, grizzle-bearded, stalwart old nigger that he was, of true African descent, a genuine specimen of the southern plantation freed slave, whom his late owner, Hubert Gonald, might at any moment of his life have sold as a horse or a dog. Martha Massey, a freed slave woman such as many owners in the old slave-owning days, now happily gone, had kept just as they would have kept a cow, for what she was worth, and sold her children from her bosom just as it would have suited their convenience for the profit they would make, or used her in other ways too iniquitous even to name. Such were the enormities of slave life. Such parents as these, Jules Massey, because they were his parents, would have acknowledged in the presence of a king, for if Jules had vanity and conceit, he had very little of that most despicable pride. But as we have often said before, the slave property of the late Bertram Gonald's late father, Hubert Gonald, had never while in his possession been reduced to such utter depths of degradation as these. In the English seeing eyes of the old, dead planter slaves were human beings. And then came the voyage. To old Jeff Massey, as he crossed the great ocean, the wonders of the deep were marvelous wonders indeed. And as day after day the prow of the great steamer claved the illimitable sea, his astonishment never seemed to abate. Then, as he stood in the midst of London, in the great seas and tides of human activity and life which never ceased the monotony of their constant ebb and flow, he marveled almost still more. But in the eyes of Jeff, the splendid, jeweled, and gilded personality of his own son Jules, his fashionably cut cloth, 
his tall silk hat of spotless sheen, his upright form, his haughty air, this in the eyes of the old Negro slave Jeff was the greatest marvel of all. That his own son Jules should come to be such a fine gentleman was almost what he could not believe. We need not pursue the daily life of the trio in London. It were indeed needless almost to introduce the episode of their visit into these pages, had it not been for the means of casting an enlightening radiance across the track, so obscured in mystery, of this tale. Had Jules Massey mailed to his parents all the press accounts which appeared of the terrible event of Bertram Gonald's death and the dark cloud through which he himself was passing, the illiteracy of old Jeff and Martha would have precluded them from availing themselves of the information. For compulsory ignorance, not compulsory education, was the rule of bondage in the old slave days. If Jules had had to die a felon's death by the hangman's hand, it would have been better far that his parents should be spared the humiliation and pain, better far that all remembrance of his name be blotted out. But now all the storm clouds around this terrific avalanche of woe had cleared, blown away, and for the first time Jules spoke of them to old Jeff and Martha face to face. As the black pair sat in their son's plainly furnished, plainly garnished little London room, which they considered very, very snug quarters indeed, so they were, no doubt, after the log cabin on a Virginian plantation which had been old Jeff's idea and ideal of home. As they sat there listening to all the saddening narrative of the tale which we have unfolded, which you, dear reader, step by step have been told, of Bertram Gonald's flight, if flight we may call it, from his Virginian home at Millbank, of his successful suit to establish his claim to his ancient home, of his rise to wealth and splendor, and then of his mysterious murder and untimely death, then of Jules' arrest and liberation, then of the strange rumors which came to Jules' ears. For you must know, dear reader, that Jules knew much less than we have told you of the movements of Colonel Vandermeulen and his little ferret man in New York, of Bertram having been seen alive in New York. The once slave parents looked at their son and listened to all he said in astonishment expressed, rather than in words, by widely open mouths and eyes. For it is often by such facial contortions that surprise is expressed more plainly than in words. And thus Jules Massey told his parents the whole ghastly tale. We need not reproduce here that which Jules Massey's parents old Jeff and Martha, told their son that they too knew, for we prefer rather to tell it in the sequel than in the text. And when Jules Massey heard what his parents could tell him, it was then Jules's turn to open his eyes and mouth widely with surprise. And so in the sequel we will tell our tale. It was within twenty-four hours of Jules and his parents' interchange of narratives that the door opened of Mr. Lumley's office near Lincoln's Inn Fields, and to the surprise and amusement of the array of Mr. Lumley's clerks, three black faces appeared. At this uncommon apparition of three black faces, where the usual topics of consideration were broad acres and broad cloth, a subdued twitter arose, 
and some of the young gentlemen of Mr. Lumley's staff did not refrain from breaking forth into a broad grin, till one, more self-controlled than the rest, suppressed his risible desires into a certain external gravity of face, and requested of Jules Massey, for to Jules Massey and his parents did the three black faces belong, what his pleasure might be. Jules replied that his pleasure was an interview with Mr. Lumley, and very soon in Mr. Lumley's presence the three dusky forms stood. Jules had acquired some of the manner of good English society, as well as some of its airs, so rather than at all obsequiously, he shook the great conveyancer quite cordially, quite genially by the hand. But when Jules introduced his immediate forebears, the salutation with which they expressed their pleasure or respect for Mr. Lumley, was of a less civilized, more ludicrous sort, and which brought an ill-suppressed smile even onto the lawyer's white face. Please, Mr. Lumley, father and mother had something to tell you which I thought you might like to hear, which might throw a little more light on poor master's death, Jules began very sorrowfully. Yes, said the lawyer with an encouraging, not to say patronizing look at the black pair, and of which each of them acknowledged again the condescension with salutation of an indescribable kind. Lawyers, Mr. Lumby, my jewels, he has just been a-tellin' we dis here dreadful tale of our poor young Massa Bertram's murder, broke in Martha Massey, too full of it and too full of womanhood to restrain the event in her overwhelming heart. Then, of course, you knew your son's late master, the lawyer asked. But I think if I remember rightly, you were an important witness in this suit to recover some years ago, the Vernwood estate. Ta sakes, yes, Mr. Lumby, dat I were, Martha continued. Knowed our poor young massa, Massa Bertram? Guess I did known. Why, locks, ain't I a nust in my arms dis here many a time when old massa him's father were at Millbank? Knowed him when he was a teeny weeny child and I were just a scrap of a gal like. And our old massa gone out comed, and he bought the mill blank plantation, and took me over with the rest of the hands and the stock when I were a young'un. Mammy telled me as how I were flung into the deal, cause one of the colts broke his leg and didn't count for nothing when massa gone up bought the farm and the stock off the old massa peas. The London lawyer looked quizzically at Martha Massey at this outburst as she stood before him in a gaudy shawl, recounting to him this tale of a state of society which to his English-bred way of thinking was so foreign and strange, that dark human being thrown into a deal to replace a broken-legged colt. Yet Mr. Lumley was intensely interested in what she had to tell. So then you knew your old master Hubert Gonald when he first came to live on the Millbank plantation, he asked. Noden? Why, certain I Noden, Martha replied. Old Massa Gonald, him come, so twere said, from down south where he'd made a pile of money in the silver mines, and come to Millbank with him's new wife, a real smart one, one of your tip-toppers, a real beauty she were, but lord, the very double for all her beautiful looks. And you knew your late master's son from his birth? Mr. Lumley asked. Laura! Sure I knowed all three of them, didn't I? Three of what? asked Mr. Lumley, gazing earnestly back into the black face, all eyes and ears, 
and a strange expression spread over his pallid countenance. Why, knowed old Massa Hubert Gonald's three children. You mean to say Hubert Gonald had three children, three sons? asked Mr. Lumley in surprise. My good lord, certain sure he had. Three, all born the same time. One as like to other two as tree peas out of the same pod. Good God, the great lawyer sprung to his feet. There was a look of blank surprise upon his livid face. Triplets, he gasped. But so great was his astonishment that he had hardly breath to utter the word. The very idea of throwing a great light onto so much that was mysterious seemed to take away his breath. Miss, triples, said the black woman. That's what them's called. Then tell me what you know, Mr. Lumley asked excitedly. Well, sir, Mr. Lumley, you see, toward this here way, this here's just what happened. Our old massa, the massa Lee at the Millbank Plantation, him get down, don't know how, but him get down very, very poor. But that were afore my time like, weren't it, Jeff? Jeff nodded assent. Then the day come, and old Massa Lee him go dead broke, and obliged to sell up the plantation, and sell all the hens, and the stock, and cotton crop on the plantation, everything. Then Massa Gonald, him come, come from down south, Mexico or somewhere I've been told, him come with him fine Spanish wife to Millbank, to Massa Gonald, him to bury best Massa for the niggers on the plantation in all them parts. Lord, what a time we did have. What shines, what capers, what shindies with them all darkies. But Massa Gonald, him have quarrels like the berry furies with the fine Spanish wife, till the upshot on it were Massa, he turned the fine wife out of the house. Cause Massa, him think she too fond of the young brother of old Massa Lee. But afore that, these here three children come into the world. Tree, all the same time, the same day, all there just as like as tree peas out of the same pod. And I nussed them all tree, lure. I nussed them all tree at once. Couldn't tell neither one from daughter two, nor tutter from both. And all tree marked on the right cheek, every one like the other two. Warn him, Jeff, ain't that true? Ah, uh, never seed nothing like it, Jeff replied. Never did. The lawyer stared at the old negress during her remarkable narrative with the incredulous look of a man who could scarcely credit the evidence of his own ears. Well, sir, continued Martha Massey, then Massa gone out. Him had another shine with Mrs. about the chillin, cause they both claims all the tree. So what they do, they draws lots for the children. Dinner Massa gone out, him get the one, and the missus get the other two of them thar children, the Lord knows which two, cause nobody except the mother couldn't tell nor a one from the other two. A broad smile passed over Mr. Lumley's features at the strangest of strange histories. He would have disbelieved every word of it, would have treated it as a wild fabrication, had it not been brought to him by Jules Massey, who sat near, a silent listener to all that was being said, and in Jules' veracity and true-heartedness, he had the fullest faith. Then did the wife of your master leave the home at Millbank? Mr. Lumley asked. Lord, yes, 
Massa Gonad, him go off on horseback one day, and when he come back, the missus were gone with her two children, and I never seed her after that. I never set eyes on her again. And do you know where she went? No, never heard certain. But guess she went down south, and we never seed nor she nor the two children again. None of the hands didn't. And what became of the other child? The lawyer asked. Master Bertram, dad it were, replied Martha. Him stop at Millbank. I nussed and knowed all the time of his grown up like right up to the time when the war came. Then our old massa and young massa Bertram, they both go off to the war, and our old massa, him get killed. Then all the niggers on the plantation rise up against the overseer, and every nigger went just when and where he liked best. Lord, massa Lummy, never were there such times like them are. Never were, never were. And did you see Mr. Bertram after that? asked Mr. Lumley. No, except that there were just one day. Him come back to Millbank regular broke down like, cause old massa him's father dead, and the old home broke up, and all the niggers gone where the Lord knows where. Then him, young master Bertram dad it were, him come to our cabin, cause I and Jeff and the young'uns we stopped there. Poor young Master Bertram, him regular broke-hearted like. So the next day, Master Bertram asked Jules, and they two went off together. Lord knows where they went. But I only bless the Lord that my Jules, he ain't killed, and such a fine gentleman too. And as Martha Massey said so, she cast an admiring eye on the dark, well-dressed son near her, a look of maternal pride. The rest of the tale needs no telling, for the place where Martha Massey left off in her narrative was just about the epoch where many years ago the London conveyancer's connection with Bertram Gonald and the Vernwood romance began. But Martha Massey's story threw, for Mr. Lumley, a great light into the deeper, profounder recesses of what there was once so mysterious and inexplicable in the circumstances of Bertram Gonald's birth and history and life and death. The mists of doubt and uncertainty had blown aside and left in the eye of his mind a dissolution of the enigma which for years had been puzzling and perplexing him, a view as clear as when in the physical world a traveler gains an alpine summit and sees from its altitude as far as his eye can reach an uninterrupted view of the lower world. End of section 34 Read by Paul Hampton.